There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. Gospel according to Mark. Maybe your Bible's starting to fall open naturally to this book now. I'm hoping you'll fall in love with this gospel record and with the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus and these gospels. So much so that when you go home, you'll read and study it for yourself. And tonight, I bring you to Mark chapter 12. It's an interesting chapter because it ends in conf- or it begins in conflict and ends in peace. It It begins and continues with lots of back and forth and almost fighting and argument and debate. But when it ends, it ends with a totally different picture, quite a contrast. All through the chapter, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, they're like back and forth with Jesus, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Would you look here just a moment? Some of you are back and forth with Jesus this week. You're sitting in the meetings, you're hearing the message, and you know the truth, and you know what you ought to do, but you're arguing with the Lord. And you say, how does he know that? Because I've been there. I sat where you sit now, and I said to Brother Collier earlier today, a few years ago, I was arguing with the Holy Spirit. I figured out something. That's not an argument you can win. And these people, they were trying to win the argument. They were trying to ask Jesus hard questions. There's nothing you can ask Jesus. He can't answer. And so the Lord is giving them answers to their questions, but it must have been exhausting because everywhere he turns, somebody's asking something different. They're trying to catch him and trying to prove he's wrong. He wasn't wrong because he is the God of truth. And so in Mark chapter 12 and verse 37, I like this. At the end of one of the questions, it says, And the common people heard him gladly. I love that. Mark 12, 37, the common people heard him gladly. I hope you'll hear him gladly tonight. And then Jesus said unto them in verse 38 in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feast, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. That's pretty strong language. And I find it interesting that Jesus reserved his strongest language for the religious people. I could stand up on this platform tonight and preach against all the sinners out there, and everybody would say, that's right, preacher, give it to them. But what about our sin? And the Lord Jesus turned it around on the religious people and said, you got the biggest problem because you love everybody to think you're all right, and you love to talk like you're all right, but way down deep inside, you're not all right. And there's an interesting turn of phrase here. He says in verse number 40, they devour the widow's houses. Later in the New Testament, we learned that 
pure religions taking care of the widows. You can tell a lot about a person by how they treat people lesser than them, at least in their estimation, by how they treat those who are under them. You can tell a lot about people by how they treat people when they're down. It reveals their estimation not just of people but of God. But immediately, this is interesting, immediately after he points at these religious people and says, you people think you're all of that and more, but you're stepping on the little people, you're stepping on the widows, you're hurting the widows. At that very moment, a widow comes along. And here's our story. Look at verse number 41. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. Look at verse 42. And there came a certain poor widow. And she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Here's the picture. Jesus comes along and takes a seat in a certain place. The treasury was not the place where they, where they brought the taxes. It really was more of the place where they brought the offering. In fact, it's interesting, but early in this chapter, they bring him a, a penny, has Caesar's picture on it, and an inscription about Caesar being Lord, which is really interesting. And they give it to Jesus, and they say, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you think we ought to pay taxes or not? And he said, let me see your penny. And he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. They couldn't catch him. He was, he was wise. He said, you pay your taxes, but you give to God what belongs to God. Now, they liked the first part, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. They just missed the second part, give to God what belongs to God. So later in the same chapter, that's really what he's trying to teach. So he takes up a seat, just sitting casually, in a place called the treasury. It was where they brought the temple offerings. It's where they brought the money, their, their religious offerings, and out of that, they were to care for the widows. Isn't that funny? They were supposed to care for the widows, and the widows putting money in. They were supposed to care for the poor, and the poor are bringing money to it. It's just really interesting. It reveals a lot about a person's heart, and Jesus is watching them bring their offerings, and there's a big, long line of religious people, and they're carrying bucket loads of stuff and making a big to-do over it. You know what I'm talking about. When people are doing something to be seen, I mean, it's not because their heart is pure. It's just because they want everybody to pat them on the back and say, what a wonderful Christian you are. And so they're dumping all this money into the treasury, and they're applauding one another. And in the mob, in the multitude, is a little widow woman that nobody notices but Jesus. Would you look at me? You might think in this big crowd of people that you're lost in the crowd, that nobody sees you, nobody knows you, but I want you to know Jesus sees you. And Jesus knows everything there is to know about you. And he's got his eye on you. She's making her way through the crowd, and when she gets to the front in the treasury, she takes out of her pocket two widow's mites. Now, if you'd like to know what a widow's mite is, I have one. This actually came from Israel. It's a little biblical coin. It's bronze. They tell me, if this is accurate, that this particular one dates back to about 103 or 104 B.C., so this would have been perhaps even in circulation in Jesus' day. This, this would precede the time of Christ, which means it would have still been in circulation at that time. And if you can look there, it's a little white card, but at the bottom, do you see that little brown spot 
If you want to look at it more closely at the end of the meeting, come and see me. I'll let you, let you hold in your hand at least the package. It is so thin. It's much thinner than one of our coins. It literally looks, if you look at it very carefully, it literally looks like a pebble. If I dropped this out on the sidewalk tonight, you wouldn't think twice about it. You wouldn't bend over and pick it up. It would be meaningless to you. It, it just looks like a little pebble, and yet it was part of the currency of Jesus' day. And the widow brings two mites. I never really noticed this till today. Isn't it funny I can read the same stories over and over and miss certain things? But today I noticed for the first time she had how many of these? Look, look at your passage. How many did she have? How many? Two. Now watch. Wouldn't you think logically, reasonably, she could have said, you know, I'm going to give the Lord one and I'm going to keep the other one for myself. But she doesn't. Instead, she gives them both. She makes no fanfare. There's, there's no sounding of trumpets. Look what the widow put in. She comes to the offering to the treasury, and she quietly throws in her two mites, and immediately Jesus says, Hey, fellows, come over here. You remember those disciples we, we met early in the week? They're, they're standing kind of aloof looking around. Remember, they got really impressed with the crowds, and they got really impressed with the buildings. And See, what impresses people is not what always impresses Jesus. And Jesus decides he's going to hold class right there, right there at the offering plate. Now, it's amazing how the Lord can teach you at the times when you least think he's about to do something. And he calls them around. And he says, look, look at that woman. And they look at him. They don't see anything very significant. And he said, look what she just put in. And they see two little widow's mites, and they don't think much about that. And Jesus makes one of the most astounding statements he ever made to them. He said, you see all these rich people out here? You see all these people giving all this money. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of money, Lord. It's pretty amazing. I mean, look, the coffers are overflowing. And Jesus says, I want you to know she put more in than all of them put together. Now, from a financial standpoint, from a logical standpoint, that doesn't even make sense. Somebody said, the Lord doesn't know how to do good math. Oh, divine math's different than human math. The Lord's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Take your pen. Mark three words in your Bible, would you please? I'm going to read again. Every time I stop, say the next word out loud and mark it in your Bible. Here's the first one. Look at verse 41. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in, what's that word? Much. Circle it in your Bible. They gave how much, please? One more time. The rich gave what? Much. Come down, please, to verse Number 43, and he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast, what's the next word? Now, wait a minute, the rich cast in what? But Jesus said she cast in what? Hey, let me ask you a question. How do you give more than much? If you're a poor widow woman and all you got is two of these, how do you give more than much? Jesus answers the question. Look at verse number 44. Here's the third word. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she ever want did cast in. What's that little word, please? All. And in case you missed it, Jesus repeats it. Look at the verse. She cast in all that she had, even, what's it say? All her living. The only way you can give more than much is you give all. It's fascinating to me, but they tell me that a widow woman could have lived on one of these for about one day, which means what she put in the offering was two days' worth of living expenses. What she threw into the treasury, what she just freely gave away, happily gave to God, was what she could have lived on for two days. And for a widow woman who, who has very little income and very little means to gain on the other side, you've got to think 
What a sacrifice this was, but it was no sacrifice to her. No, see, she, she had already given something more than the mites. She had given herself to God. Paul said to the church at Corinth that they gave their selves to the Lord and then they gave their money. Some of you think God's trying to get something from you. I'm going to show you before I'm done what God wants from you. But you really think God wants something from you? Do you really think that you have something that God really just needs? I want you to know something. God's not trying to take from you. God's trying to teach you that it all actually belongs to Him to start with, and you're just the temporary steward of everything He has put into your heart and everything that He's put into your hands. And what you do with it is going to reveal what your attitude towards God is. Let me give you some simple little truths tonight. I'll go through them quickly. Number one, I want you to know it's not about money. It's about your life. The world talks so much about stuff and money, so much so that even Christian young people start thinking life is all about what you can get. Jesus said life is not about the abundance of the things you possess. It's not about getting more stuff, nicer stuff, better stuff, uh, stuff better than somebody else has. It's not about material things. Your life is worth more than money. Your life is valuable to God. Your life should count for eternity. It was not about this woman's money. In fact, the last word of the chapter is the word living. Would you put your eyes on it? Do you see? It says she only gave all, she gave all her living. Did you know that the word for living here is literally the word for life? It's like she was just giving her life away. This was her life savings. This, this was her lifeblood. This, this was her her. her, her money for her life's food. This was everything that she had. She gave her life away. I must tell you that I meet very few Christians that I think have really just given their life away to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, most of us are trying to hold on to as much of it as we possibly can. We're clutching it with both hands and releasing only the parts that we think people are going to notice. This woman had a different attitude. She said, I'm willing to give Jesus everything because Jesus gave everything to me. It is not about money. It's about your life. There's a second truth in the story, and it is this. It's not about what others do. It's about what you're supposed to do. You know one of the greatest dangers in Christianity? we start checking ourselves by what everybody else is doing. Like, we start thinking, well, I go to youth group more than she does, and I read my Bible more than he does, and I know more about God than they do, and I, I'm not as bad as they are. Paul said something about that to the church at Corinth. He said that those who measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves are not wise. The most foolish thing you can do is make another sinner your standard. The truth of the matter is that God is not interested in you just being a little better than somebody else. He's interested in you being completely His. That's why one day when Peter and John were walking along, and Peter turned around and saw John and said, Lord, what's this fellow going to do? And Jesus looked him in the face and said, If he lives till I come the second time, what business is that of yours? Follow thou me. I'm going to tell you, some of us need to get our eyes off everybody else and get our eyes back on Jesus. It is not about what somebody else does or doesn't do. It's about what you're going to do with Christ. I remember years ago standing around a campfire at the end of a week of camp. I I can take you to the spot. We were in Tennessee, up on a high ridge, a big crowd of campers all standing around a campfire, and people were giving testimonies. 
It was late, middle of the night. People throwing sticks in the fire and talking about what God had done in their heart. It was wonderful. A girl stood up. I could see her across the fire. Beautiful, blonde-headed teenage girl. She stood up, tears streaming down her face. She raised her hand, and this is what she said. She said, I just want to praise God that everybody in my youth group got right with God this week. And everybody said, hey, man, I mean, honestly, people are praising God. That's amazing. Everybody in the youth group got right with the Lord. Wouldn't that be a glorious thing if everybody in your youth group went home right with God this week? If, if not a single soul left lost, if everybody was really yielded to Christ, let's pray to that end. But I had a terrible thought. <laughs> I'm looking at her in all of her sincerity, rejoicing that everybody got right with God, and this was my immediate thought. I wonder what that girl's going to do when she gets home and everybody else doesn't follow through. Because the stark reality is that everybody that came to camp this week is not going to follow Jesus forever. And that everybody that's sitting here listening to me right now is not going to stay in tune with God. You, look, you're going to have to make that decision for yourself. Nobody can make it for you, and you can't make it for anybody else. I'm sorry. Christianity is not a group sport. You must decide what you're going to do with Jesus. It's not about your money. It's about your life. It's not about what others give. It's about what you're supposed to give. Here's a third little truth I learned from the story. It's not about how much you give. It's about how you give it. Did you notice how the story began? Back up to verse number 41. This fascinates me. Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people gave. It doesn't say how much. Everybody else has got their calculator out, and they're, they're marking how much people give. They're keeping score. Isn't that how we live our lives? We're keeping score. I'm doing a little better than I did yesterday. I'm doing better than somebody else. Jesus is not looking to just simply see how, about the score. See, God sees and measures differently than we do. It is not about how much you think you have to give to God. It is rather about how you give it to God. It is more about your attitude than it is just about your actions. It's, it's not just about what everybody sees and can measure. It's about the attitude with which you do it. In the book of Romans, the Bible says if you give, you ought to do it with simplicity. Keep it simple. In other words, don't overcomplicate this thing. Just give it away. Just liberally give your life to God. You'll never regret a single day that you gave to Jesus Christ, but you'll someday regret every day that you gave to sin, every day. The Bible says in the book of Corinthians that God didn't want you giving grudgingly or of necessity. I meet, I meet people sometimes, and they're Christians, and they're perfectly miserable being Christians too. They go to church, but only because they have to. And they read the Bible a little bit, but I don't really get anything out of it. And I pray, but I'm just supposed to do that. And, well, if you insist that I need to give out a track this week, I'll do it. It's almost like God's dragging them, kicking and screaming. And I want to say, something's wrong here. Philippians 2.13 says, it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God puts new desires in you when you get near to God. He gives you a different wanter. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. That doesn't mean God gives you everything you want. It means he gives you what he wants, and you start wanting different things for your life. God didn't want you doing the right things miserably. You really think the Christian life is supposed to be utterly miserable, that you're supposed to live grudgingly and of necessity? No, no. He goes on to say God loves a cheerful giver. Are you a cheerful Christian? If I wanted to know what kind of Christian you were, I wouldn't ask your youth pastor. 
I'd ask the people that live at your house. They know. See, nobody's a better Christian than the Christian they are in the privacy of their own home. If you want to know what kind of preacher I am, you can listen to a sermon. If you want to know what kind of Christian I am, you'll have to ask Tammy and Morgan and Lauren and Grant because they know me better than anybody on earth. And I ask you again, would anybody say that you have such the joy of the Lord that you're, you're not just living the Christian life and following Jesus, you are enjoying doing it. Look, God is observing how you give your life to Him. And you can live and do all the right things and be on the right side but not the bright side. And God says, no, I want you to know the joy of the Lord. I want you to give it cheerfully. And then... Here's a fourth little truth. It's not about giving something. It's about giving everything. Did you mark the word found twice in verse 44? All. She gave it all. I asked you a few moments ago. Look here, please. I asked you a few moments ago. What are you going to give? I'm not talking about money. Do you understand money is the least thing in your life? In fact, it's the least thing in this world. Isn't it crazy? We spend most of our life trying to get more of something that isn't going to go with us to the next world. We spend all of our energy, all of our resources, and all of our life trying to get more stuff. They said Alexander the Great, when he died, before he died, told the people, when you carry my body through the streets and the people pay respect, stick my arms out and keep my hands open. And they said, that's a strange request. He said, I want them to know I conquered the known world, but I didn't take any of it with me when I left this world. I read the story of a young boy growing up in Detroit, Michigan. He had never been in church in his life. Somebody led him to Jesus. He came to a church service one of the first times, and he's sitting next to a fine, well-dressed, wealthy woman near the back of the church. And it came time for the offertory. Every church does it a little different. They started playing music, and these well-dressed, stern-looking men walk down the aisle, you know, with these buckets and offering plates and start passing them down. You can imagine a kid who's never grown up in church. I wonder, like, you paying admission? I mean, what's going on here? And he said to the lady next to him, he leaned over and he said, what are they doing? She said, we're receiving the offering. What's the offering? Well, we're giving back to the Lord because we recognize the Lord's given us everything. We're thankful. He said, what do you normally put in? She said, whatever you have. He looked in his pockets. He had nothing. Didn't have any money to give. And he's watching as the baskets are passing the rows in front of him. It seems like everybody's putting something in. He's sitting out on the aisle. And finally, when the usher gets back to where he is, he leans over the usher and he says, would you put the, put the plate down a little lower, a little lower, a little lower, a little lower. Finally, he says, would you set it on the floor? And the usher complies, sets it on the floor, and the little boy, just a small little lad, steps out of his pew and steps into the offering plate, both feet into the offering plate. And the man says, son, what are you doing? And the boy said, they said, give whatever you had, and I, I don't have anything else to give. But I thought maybe I could just give me to God. Can I tell you what we've done? We've created a Christianity where we give him a little every now and then to kind of keep him happy and keep everybody else happy, but we've lost the simplicity and the sincerity and the beauty of a little child so in love with Jesus and so grateful for salvation that we are just willing to give God ourselves. God doesn't just want your stuff. 
God wants you. And he doesn't want part of you. We sang last night. We, at least we played it last night. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I shudder to think how many times we've sang that lie in church. How many times we've sung that we love Jesus with all of our heart, but we really don't. How many times we say we've surrendered all to Christ, but we really haven't. And I came to ask you tonight, what is the area of your life that is not completely yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? For some of you in this room, it's, it's your whole life. You're not even saved. I mean, you, you've played the game, and while others have gotten it settled this week, you have not. And God says, I want you. I want your soul. I want you to be my child. And some of you have something in your life that ought not be there. God's convicted you of it, but you haven't released it to God yet. That's what God is saying to you tonight. And for some of you, it's not some ugly black thing in your life. It is some good thing that God wants you to do, but you're holding back. You're afraid of what others will say or what others will think or what you will do or what you can't do. And God says, no, no, that's the area of your life I want. And I wonder tonight if there'd be some young men and young women in this room that would put their life in God's divine offering plate and say, Jesus, I give you all of my life and you do with it whatever you choose to do. I'll tell you this. God can do more with your life than you can. You still in Mark 12? Back up just one page, same chapter. Look at verse number 30. Isn't this interesting? In the same chapter, Jesus had just taught this. Look at Mark 12, verse 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with, what's that word, please? All thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. God wants not a part of your heart. He wants all of your heart, your deepest affections. He doesn't want part of your soul. He wants all of your soul, your whole life. He doesn't want part of your strength. He wants all of your strength. He doesn't want part of your mind. He wants all of your mind. Jesus Christ wants all there is of you. Did you know when Jesus quoted in Mark 12, verse 30, he was quoting from the Old Testament? Did you ever notice Jesus added something to the list? If you find the original quote from the Old Testament, you love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength or might. But Jesus added one of the lists, and somebody said, can he do that? Well, he wrote the first draft. He can add anything to it he wants to. He is the Word. You know what he added? Your mind. wonder why he added mind. Can I tell you where the great battle is going on tonight in this room? It's in your mind. There's a spiritual tug of war going on there. It's the same word used in the Bible for the imaginations. You want to know? You want to know whether you really love Jesus or not? What do you think about when nobody's around? When you lay in bed in the middle of the night and, you, and your mind runs somewhere, when you get stressed out and worked up and you, you, you need release and relief, where does your mind wander to? Because Jesus says if you've really given everything to him, that even the imaginations of your mind will race to Jesus. The deepest thoughts of your life will be centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Do you really love him? Do you know who the opposite? You know who the opposite of this widow woman is? Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. They said they gave everything. They lied. By the way, it's very dangerous to lie to the Holy Spirit. The Bible uses this expression. It says they kept back part. By the way, you know what God did? God struck them. Their lives cut short because they kept back part. And I'm standing before you tonight thinking about my own life. Lord, are there parts of me unyielded to you? Are there 
Are there parts of me that are not fully given to Christ? He doesn't want part. He wants it all. That's what it really means to be a true follower of Jesus. C.T. Studd was a household name in England in his day. He was a cricket player. It'd be like me saying the name of some NBA legend or some NFL star, and everybody in the room would say, oh, we know who that is. That was C.T. Studd in England in his day. He went to a meeting one night, a youth meeting, where D.L. Moody was preaching, and he got saved. He didn't just get saved. I mean, he got so on fire for God, he decided he believed God wanted him to be a missionary, and he became a missionary. He married a girl named Priscilla. Now, you ought to read something about C.T. Studd sometime. I mean, he was, he was a man's kind of man, but he was God's man. He wrote a little booklet called The Chocolate Soldier. He said, Christians today are not good soldiers of Jesus Christ, enduring hardness. Christians today are chocolate soldiers. They look really nice, and they seem sweet, but when the heat gets turned up and the fire comes, they all melt. He had something. He married a girl named Priscilla. She was as crazy for the Lord as he was. Matter of fact, this is true. She came down the aisle on their wedding day with a banner across her wedding gown that said, United to do battle for Jesus. That's a woman right there, girls, let me tell you. I mean, she was just, she was something. And C.T. and Priscilla, they went to India. They went to Africa. I mean, they shook continents for the Lord. He was standing one night in a meeting giving his testimony. They said there was just a glow about him. He was just so full of God. He was just given to God. Nothing, nothing held back. Just, I mean, out and out for the Lord. On fire. On fire. Dear Lord, give us some people like that in this room. Oh, may the Holy Ghost of God light a fire in some of your hearts tonight that the devil in this world can't extinguish. Dear Lord, this generation needs some people like C.T. Studd and Priscilla, wholly given to Jesus. Dear God, answer that prayer. He gave his testimony. There was a man in the back of the auditorium that night, an older gentleman, a fine, well-dressed man, middle-aged man. When the meeting was done, people were milling around like they do. This man made his way down the far aisle and came over to where C.T. was standing. And he said, introduced himself. He didn't give his name, shook his hand. He said, uh, uh, young man, I was blessed by your testimony. He said, but I want to ask you a question. He said, you seem to have something I don't have. What is it? C.T. Studd immediately said to him, sir, have you surrendered everything to Jesus Christ? The man took a step back, put both hands up in the air. He was offended. He said, of course, I'm a minister. He said, I'm not only a minister, I'm, I'm fairly well known. I've written books. Interestingly enough, he's one of my favorite authors. His name is F.B. Meyer. He turned to walk away. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't leave him alone. F.B. Meyer said, I walked home alone that night by the river, just me and God. And the question kept going over and over and over in my mind. Have you surrendered everything to Jesus? He said, I got to my house, I took a big wad of keys out of my pocket and opened the door and went into a dark home alone and closed the door behind me, holding the keys in my hand. And he said, at that moment, he said, I didn't see him literally. He said, but this is kind of the way the Lord spoke to me that night. He said, it was like the Lord showed up and held out his hand and said, Meyer, I want the keys to your life. 
And Aunt Pamela said, of course, Lord. And he said, in my mind, I, I gave him everything. I handed him the keys. And he said, I watched as Jesus stood before me and counted the keys one at a time. And when he finished counting, he said, I saw my Lord drop his head and quietly say, there's one missing. And F.B. Meyer said, I tried to argue with him. And I said, yes, Lord, but it's just a key to a little room, a little part of my life. I mean, look what I've given you. It's not a big thing. It's just one little area. Can I keep the one area? And he said, I watched as Jesus turned to walk away from me. And I said, Lord, don't leave me like this. And he said, I heard Jesus say to my spirit, Meyer, if I am not Lord of all, I am not Lord at all. And F.B. Meyer said that night, I reached into the pocket of my life and I pulled out the last lonely key to that secret area of my life that no one knew about but Jesus and that I had kept for myself. And that night, I put that key in the nail-pierced hand of Jesus Christ. And F.B. Meyer said, and my life has never been the same since that moment. You know what some of you are looking for? You're never going to find it until you surrender all to Jesus Christ. You're never going to know God's full blessing and power and victory and joy on your life as long as you're negotiating with God and trying to make a deal about how much you can keep. God says, I tell you what I want. I want it all. Somebody said, what does God want from me anyhow? I'm glad you asked. He wants you to love him. That's what Jesus said. Just love me with all. To love and to give is the same thing. Do you know why the Lord wants you to love him that way? Because he loves you that way. One more truth. Would you write it down, please? It's not about your money. It's about your life. It's not about what others give. It's about what God wants from you. It's not about how much you give. It's about how you give. It's not about giving something. It's about giving everything. Number five, it's not about what people think. It's about what God sees. For the record, he sees. Some of you this week have resisted, you've resisted to this moment any definite step of faith and obedience because you're really worried about what that boy is going to think or that girl is going to think. Let me just get really blunt tonight. Who cares what they think? What does Jesus think? You're not going to stand before them someday, and you're not going to stand with them someday. I used to think, I used to think someday. I was going to stand for God, and this is the way it was going to be. God had assigned an angel to my life who had followed me around all my life with a video camera and videotaped every bad thing I'd ever done. And at the judgment seat, this giant screen was going to fall out of heaven, and God was going to replay it all up on the screen, and me and everybody was going to have to watch it together, and I was going to be humiliated and terribly embarrassed. I started studying my Bible, and I found out that's not true at all. It's much worse than that. On the day you kneel before Jesus... You really think you're going to care what she thinks? Or you're going to care what he thinks? Pfft. On that day, it's going to be you and the creator God of the universe alone. And you're going to know. He saw everything. He knows it all. Go ahead. You can look to the left, to the right, in front of you, behind you like Achan did. But you better remember to look up. Because there's a God in heaven whose eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, beholding the evil and the good. God sees and God knows. Hey, widow woman, I know you don't think anybody notices what's going on. Jesus is sitting there. 
By the way, I've often wondered if, if she knew exactly who was sitting there. I don't know. I don't know that answer. But the Son of God was sitting there watching. Jesus had his eye on her. Young lady, Jesus has his eye on you. And young man, Jesus has his eye on you. And who cares what everybody says and who cares what they think? You are not what you say you are. You are not what others think you are. You are what God knows you to be. And God says, I want you to give it all to me. And I wonder tonight, God's shooting arrows out of heaven right now. What's God saying to you? What's the area of your life? It's going to be different for everybody in the room, but there's something in all of our lives, some besetting sin, some weight that must be laid aside, some relationship that's holding us back, some step of faith and obedience we keep saying we're going to take someday. What is the thing that God is saying to you? I say, do it now. Whatever it is, you'll be glad you did on the day you see Jesus. Do it today because any day you may meet the Lord face to face. I was preaching in a place one night, and a lady came forward weeping. And she said, I've been saved for years. And she said, everybody thought I'd been baptized in another church. She said, I've never been baptized since I was saved. She said, I want to get baptized. And, of course, everybody was happy about it. And the pastor said, God bless you, sister. We'll take care of it on Sunday. And she raised her hand, and she said, no, sir. She said, i got to get baptized tonight. He said, but the water's cold. It's going to be freezing cold. We can get it warm by Sunday. She's weeping. She said, I don't care if it's freezing cold. She said, I've gone to bed one too many nights knowing I'd held something back from God. And she said, I don't want to pillow my head another night until I know I've given Jesus everything he's asked me to give him. Now, I wonder, before you pillow your head tonight and another day ends, and you're another day nearer to meeting God. What's your little widow's might? I know you think it's small. Nothing's small when God puts his finger on it. What's the little thing God says, I want you to come. I want you to place that in the offering. I was pondering this today. I mean, let's, get, let's just get real for a second, okay? Like, why should we do this? If I stand up here and preach and holler and scream and say, give it all to the Lord. And you say, well, I know, I know, yeah, I know what it is, and I know I really should, but I mean, why? What's the great motivator? Would you like to know what it is? It's not the widow woman. She's not the greatest example. She's a good illustration, but she's not the greatest. The greatest example was the one who was sitting there watching her and the one who told the story. Would you like to know who really gave it all? Jesus gave it all. Look at him. Look, look. Do you see him on his face in a garden? Praying so intently that his sweat becomes as great drops of blood. Oh, agony like that agony. And he prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Give it all. Look at him at Gabbatha. The Hebrew, the place of the pavement, they scourge him there. They stripped his clothes off his body and let the Son of God stand in naked shame and beat him mercilessly until he doesn't look like a human being anymore. Isaiah said his visage more marred than any man. It was ugly. They beat a crown of thorns on his head. 
And somebody says, make him carry his own cross. And he picks up a tree he created. Giving it all. And he struggles and stumbles under the weight of it. And more than that, under the weight of your sin of a mountain that he had shaped. And they lay his naked body down on a cross and drive spikes through his hands and his feet. And they raise it up in the air and it drops down into the hole that was dug for it. And now all of his bones are out of joint. They look and stare at him. And the people below laugh and mock and say, if you're really the son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? And he answers not a word. And when he does speak, when he finally opens his mouth, it is to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then the lights go out. It's midnight in the middle of the day. As God the Father can no longer look on our sin, and for the first time he turns his back on his own son, and a cry pierces the darkness, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And on this side of the cross, we can answer it. We know why he was forsaken so we could be reconciled. He took death so we could take life. He took sin so we could take righteousness. He suffered hell so we could go to heaven. That's why. So you could sit here tonight. That's why. So you could go to heaven someday. That's why. Look at him on the cross. What's he saying? I love you this much. You say what he wants from you? He just wants love. We love him because he first loved us. See, he never asked you to go first. He went first. He didn't ask you to love first. He loved first. He didn't ask you to die to self first. He died first. He didn't ask you to yield first. He yielded first. He didn't ask you to give first. He gave first. He always goes first. And finally, one word, to tell us thy. It's finished. And in a moment of time, he gave it all. All of his energy, all of his strength, all of his blood, all of his life, all of his holiness, all of his glory. He gave it all. And we're seriously going to spend our life trying to hold back a little part for ourselves. He became known as Count Zinzendorf. He started one of the greatest missionary movements in the history of the world. It's called the Moravian Missionary Movement. You ought to read about it sometimes. It's powerful. You know when it started? When he was about 16 years old in school. He went to a German art gallery one day, and he's walking through this art gallery, and some artist had painted a picture of Calvary with the three crosses and the suffering man in the middle. And let me hasten to say, nobody can depict, nor can I describe, the kind of suffering Jesus actually went through and what he gave on that day. But Zinzendorf was captured by the painting, and he's looking at the man on the middle, and he turns to walk away. And he said, when I did, there was a little caption under the painting that caught my attention. I had not seen it yet. And he said, I read these words aloud. All this have I done for thee. What hast thou done for me? 
And Zinzendorf said, I will do something. He went back to his school and started a prayer group, and the prayer group became the Moravian missionary movement that swept the world and brought hundreds of thousands into the kingdom of God. And you know where it started? It started with a little widow's mite. It started with something that seemed insignificant, but it started when somebody finally gave their all. And I don't know what's in your hand tonight. I don't know what's in your mind, in your heart. I don't know what habits in your life. I don't know. But I know tonight that's the thing you need to put in the offering. Nobody's going to take it. Nobody's walking down the aisle. So come on now, put something in. No, Jesus stands with nail-pierced hands and says, I want your life. Would you put your life in my hands? Would you be like this little widow woman? What an example for a bunch of young people from an elderly woman. What an example for a bunch of people who really don't know a whole lot about poverty like this woman did, but she gave it all. And I wonder, what is it tonight you need to put in the offering? If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.